You're listening to the Sound Defense Alliance podcast. Welcome back to the Sound Defense Alliance podcast. I'm Tara, and I'm here with my co-host, Caitlin. This is episode six, which means we're already halfway through. Money talks, and in this episode, we'll be learning about the economic impacts of the naval installations on Whidbey Island. We're joined by guest Michael Schumann. He's the author of 10 books on local economies, including most recently, Put Your Money Where Your Life Is. Michael is also an adjunct professor at Bard Business School and a senior economist at the Consultancy Council Fire. We'll start by letting him tell us a bit more about himself and his background. I often tell people there are three reasons you may not like me. One is that an economist. The second is I'm an attorney. And the third is I've spent most of my lifetime living in Washington, D.C. That is no longer true, by the way. I now live in Southern California. But I have spent most of my life using these particular skills and connections to try to make a case for stronger local economies. And most of the writing that I've done, most of the teaching that I do, Most of the studies that I perform are all around how people can strengthen their economies. And my view is is that much of what we are doing in economic development is completely wrongheaded. And what interested me in this particular project in Whidbey Island was that it was such a classic example of smart people marching in the wrong direction for economic development. One of the more popular slogans in Northwood B is Jets equals jobs. Can you tell us a bit more about, I guess, that sentiment and how maybe the economy on Northwood B is impacted by maybe both the naval base or just the Growler Jets? So the truth is, is that any economic development initiative will create jobs. And there's no question that jets do equal jobs. What is not said is that the ability of jets to create jobs is a lot weaker than other things you might do with the same money, land, or people. And what is also not said is what are the costs of those jobs? And when I came to start working with the folks on Whidbey Island in 2016, there had been no analysis of the negative side of the equation. That is, thanks to all of the people who support the defense contracts, which is everyone with a vested interest in it, we had lots of information about the purported benefits, but nothing about the costs. So my role was really to provide more of a balanced picture of what the effect in a way, the devil's bargain of this kind of dependency on naval operations, what it would affect on Whidbey Island. Can you expand a bit about those effects and kind of describe how people and their livelihoods are affected by their jets, not just the people, but the impacts on communities, homes, and places of work? So I looked at a couple of different things. One thing that I looked at is just how the military universe shortchanges the economy of Whidbey Island. And the most profound way this happens is that federal activities are exempt from 
local taxation, local sales and property taxation. And because Washington state doesn't have an income tax, it depends much more heavily on property and state taxes for everything, whether it's schools or it's the running of local government or it's environmental cleanup or traffic control. And it turns out that because so much of the military is off limits for taxation, the island winds up subsidizing lots of things that are involved with the military. So while the average resident of Whidbey Island pays completely for the schooling of their child, the typical military worker has the schooling costs completely covered by other people living on the island because that person pays no taxes. And I estimated that the shortfall of taxes that should be collected from the people involved in the military but aren't was something like $5.3 million per year. That's one specific kind of cost. The second cost that I looked at was really what you might call the opportunity cost. So opportunity cost is what we economists really say is, okay, if you do A, you can't do B, or if you do B, you can't do A, you can't do everything. And what an economist is really trying to do is figure out how do you make these choices because resources are scarce. And people just assume that, oh, you could have the same military programs on the island and you could have a million other things happening on the island economically as well, that there's no conflict. But the truth is, is that you've got a limited amount of land and land that is used for, say, runways for planes is land that can't be used for housing or for industrial development sites. People who work for the military have to live somewhere and they are then competing for the same sort of scarce housing that exists for other people on the island. And especially because it's an island, there is a lot of scarcity of land and resources there. So one of the things that I looked at is let's imagine that we took, and at the time there was something like, I don't know, six, 7,000 military jobs on the island. That number may have changed a bit. But I said, suppose we converted those jobs from military jobs to civilian jobs. So what would happen to the economy if people were doing different things in other sectors of the economy? And you really can see the dramatic effect. So it didn't have a lot of effect on wages. People were still making more or less the same amount of money, but it actually had a huge boom on the economy. The economy grows by about a half billion dollars a year. And because of all of the indirect and the induced effects of people's purchasing, another 4,000 jobs are created and the tax base grows by $153 million. So what that study tells us is that there is a lot of potential economic development that could be unleashed if people 
were willing to let go of the Navy, that actually clinging to the Navy in perpetuity is a way of keeping the economy down. The last piece of my analysis was really looking at what economists call external costs. So what are the effects of the naval program that are costs that no one is picking up the tab for? And unfortunately, this is where the naval programs are particularly problematic and unpopular in some parts of Whidbey Island. So one is that the growlers are extremely noisy. That's why they're called growlers. And I did some extensive analysis using British health and safety standards about noise and how to convert those into monetary costs and concluded that the health costs on people on the island were millions of dollars per year. In addition, there was another cost too, which is that if you look at the 27 subdivisions on Whidbey Island that were most directly under the flight paths of the growlers, those property values plummeted. And this happened even though real estate agents have every incentive to hide the fact that these jets flying overhead is a problem. So there's not good information in the marketplace. But despite that, word gets out and these houses are only selling at greatly diminished prices. So what I did is I said, okay, when you put all those numbers together over a 10-year period, the price tag is about $122 million. Now, there are a lot of things that I didn't count and I thought we should count, but the science of counting them is a little more speculative. I mean, I'll give you an example. While I was working on this study, which was in 2016 mostly, the first research on the impact of a chemical called PFAS, which is a fire retardant, came out. And a flurry of lawsuits started happening. And it's now clear that removing PFAS from the environment of Whidbey Island, all caused by the military, could cost tens of millions of dollars. And it's a very, very carcinogenic substance. Another example, growlers are pretty dangerous. They have a high accident record. And I speculated that if one growler fell out of the sky and into a school or into a hospital, it would be an unprecedented kind of human catastrophe. I still worry about that. That kind of keeps me up at night. I think that is a huge problem. So anyway, these are the kinds of things that I was looking at. Can you tell us what kind of economic diversification can help to strengthen military communities such as the one on Whidbey Island? Or if there's any examples of this in other parts of the U.S., can we look to them and maybe use them? There are plenty of examples. And I think the first thing to say is that diversification of an economy is almost always a positive thing. Whenever an economy is dependent on one industry, even if that one industry is a bonanza, it is set up 
for a catastrophe in the future because markets always change, the political and economic circumstances always change. So you can't depend on something forever. And the smartest communities that are dependent on one industry or one resource like oil or coal understand that their short-term wealth that they gain from this has to be used for diversification. And unfortunately, that message really has not penetrated the economic development authorities on Whidbey Island yet. But we do know that diversification is helpful because it reduces what's called leakage. That is, every time a person in a community spends a dollar at a non-local business or say on Amazon to buy something mail order, it does no economic good. Whereas if you spend that money at a local business, that dollar recirculates, it multiplies through the economy. And the more times the dollar recirculates and the faster it recirculates, the more income, wealth, and jobs. That is a basic premise, a basic understanding of community economics. The leakage rate that I calculated for Whidbey Island was almost 60 cents on the dollar. That is for every dollar that comes in there from the military, 60 cents of that leaves immediately. And the reason that happens is because there is just very few local businesses. So as one diversifies the businesses, more money gets retained into the economy, and that improves the so-called economic multiplier. So what we've seen around the country, and you know, there was the first time we thought that peace had come to planet Earth in the Cold War in the early 1990s, there was a lot of movement toward budget cuts, defense budget cuts, and closing down of bases. And so a lot of communities had to reckon with how they would move their economies forward. And the story everywhere is pretty much the same. People with vested interests in the status quo complain bitterly about it and are really scared, understandably scared. But most communities make the transition without much of a problem. And I'll give you three examples of communities that have, you know, in a way, turned the lemons of closure into lemonade of economic development. So one example is, I think, the city of San Diego. City of San Diego used to be a pretty military, Navy-dependent town. And that was largely what its industry was, was Navy and tourism. Now, San Diego is all about biotech. It's one of the most thriving, diversified cities in the United States. And they basically let go of their naval dependency. You still can see little remnants of the Navy in San Diego, but it no longer has the dominance of the economy. And no one would say that the San Diego economy is poorer as a result of it. Second example, Irvine, California, the El Toro Air Force Base. Was it a naval base? I'm forgetting. But the mayor there, who is a friend of mine, Larry Agrin, came out with a really 
ambitious plan to convert the base into what is now called the Great Park. So it's uh, many times larger than Central Park. And it's a combination of recreational facilities and retail districts and business areas. And again, it has been a bonanza for Irvine. Third example, Bergstrom Air Force Base in Austin, Texas. People were really, really fearful that once this Air Force Base shut down, it would be a disaster for Austin. And when the shutdown happened, Austin was a city of, a, I don't know, maybe 300, 400,000 people. That was again in the 1990s. They converted Bergstrom into a new airport by getting the land from Bergstrom. They saved $200 million. And that new airport has created an estimated 56,000 jobs in the Austin area. Austin has grown to more than a million people. It is a thriving community. And again, diversification was the key for their doing so. So again, bottom line, conversion is short-term pain, long-term gain. Yeah, I love that example from San Diego. Whidbey is also very tourism-driven and with the pandemic, it really took a hit. And so I think diversification is so important and it makes so much sense. So thank you for providing those examples. My pleasure. Yeah, I, I and, and there are many more out there. So I just sort of cherry picked a few that I happen to know about. But I think it's harder, honestly, to find examples of where the shutdown of the military base led to a long-term catastrophe. I mean, if you're talking about very small towns that are kind of on the edge of survival anyway, and the military base is their lifeblood, yeah, I could see that. But Whidbey Island is basically a province of Seattle, right? And so being part of this larger metro area, it has access to enormous resources of people and talent and I think, you know, the conversion will have no trouble. Also in terms of capital, I mean, so many Microsoft and Amazon gazillionaires in the area, some have settled into Whidbey Island. And those are the resources that can be tapped into for building this new economy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So on the podcast, people are going to hear a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics, and a lot of stories about how the growlers impact the environment, impact local communities. How do you view the role of these economic numbers playing into convincing local community members to get more involved in these efforts or even convincing policymakers that there needs to be a change with the growlers? I like to believe that data can change minds. And a lot of my work is built around that. But I do appreciate that in the universe of economic development, old habits, bad habits have a way of not changing, even in the face of a lot of data that what you're doing is wrong. And I think that, you know, there's a couple of explanations for that. One is people, you know, with a vested interest, people are getting a paycheck from their current job and they may lose that job short term. I, I totally get 
why there's a sense of panic about that. And there's a lot of distress about the economy now generally because of inflation and rising interest rates, and there'll be a throttle back in, in uh, investment for a time. So yeah, we're in for some tough times, and I understand people's apprehension about that. What's harder to understand, I think, is the resistance of policymakers and economic developers to these ideas. And what I have seen is that at the end of the day, economic development is not about economics. It's about politics. And so long as economic development thinks that they are serving political interests of whoever is shouting loudest, and right now, at least in the northern part of the island, that is the, the preservation of the status quo with the military, it's hard for economic development to change. But I will just say that I think the more people that are aware and objectively think about these data, and the more people can wrap their imagination around a different and a more positive kind of future, I think that there is a political critical mass for change in Whidbey Island. I mean, in a way, Whidbey Island, and I, and I thought a lot about this while, while I was working on Whidbey Island, that in a way, Whidbey Island is a little bit of a microcosm of Washington State, because Washington State historically has been very defense dependent. And senators from an otherwise progressive state like Scoop Jackson were always for maximizing defense expenditures because this was the way of bringing back the bacon to people at home. The state has changed. The state has become more diversified. The state is not the same Boeing-dependent state it once was. People identify it, again, for its contributions in software and coffee and a million other things. And I do think there is a wide appreciation that this diversification of the state has been a good thing. And I think it's just you have some lagging communities like Island County that need to catch up. Island County is going to fall way, way behind unless they change. And this is really their best opportunity to change. Yeah, absolutely. I think would be really needs to look at the rest of the state and see, you know, it once was very dependent on Boeing and now it doesn't have to be and it can be the same here on Whidbey. I mean, the goal of Sound Defense Alliance is not to shut down the naval base. It's to really relocate the growlers to a place where they're not harming our communities and environment and animals. But I think it's so important to know that, you know, we don't have to be reliant and completely dependent on the naval economy. And that, yeah, like you said, we don't need to maintain the status quo. And really, one of the things that I argued in the paper is that there were a lot of very simple things the Navy could do to reduce its harm on the local economy. It could buy more of its goods and services locally. It could pay what it would have paid in sales and property taxes, you know, $5 million a year to local government. And instead, it's doing just the opposite. It's cutting back in its payments. 
it could create a compensation fund for people who do have hearing issues that have resulted from the growlers. And as you say, it can easily relocate the testing of this program. But, but the other more deeper problem of this program is that it has been obsolete for more than a decade. The growlers are all about a type of defense strategy that has largely been rendered obsolete by drones. So the clinging of the Navy to this program is completely inexplicable. Thank you, Michael, for coming on and explaining this in a way that, for me, as someone who is far and away not an economist, very easy and clear to understand. But before we wrap up, is there anything you would like to add for our listeners? Well, I will say this past year was a bittersweet year for me. It was the year my mother died at the age of 99. My mother was a naval nurse in World War II, and I have all these pictures of her in Navy regalia, and I grew up in a Navy household. We were proud of that naval experience, that naval contribution that my mother made. And I thought about this a lot with the work that I've done, and I feel like there is a lot of goodwill that the Navy can get if it stops all of the misbehaving that it has done in Island County, and it could be a good neighbor, and it could be great for the Navy and great for the island. I hope they take that step, and I think my mother hopes that as well. Be a good neighbor. That sentiment sums up so much of the philosophy of the Sound Defense Alliance and the hopes of the communities around Northwest Washington. We hope that you learned a great deal in this episode about the costs associated with the bases and the growlers and what the Navy could do to bolster the local economy and how this area could benefit from looking to diversify economically. As always, there are resources in the show notes you can easily get involved with the efforts against the growler noise issue and the efforts with the Navy to have them as a good neighbor. Thank you for listening.